Hi, and welcome to the Religion and Story podcast with your hosts, Stephen, Daniel, and Michael Crouch. Welcome to this week's podcast. We're going to change things up a little bit today. We're doing something that we want to call a, a grab bag podcast. What we're going to do is have all three of us go around and share something new that we've learned about the Bible, uh, about our, our faith, about our spiritual walk. And we'll spend about two minutes on each of these and each have about three topics that we cover. Well, Daniel, why don't you start us off? Okay, so one thing that I've learned um, fairly recently that I thought was interesting was about the idea of church discipline. Uh, if you look in Matthew 18, there's the idea of uh, going to your brother and then bringing others into the dispute. And then a lot of times in the discussion of church discipline, we bring in right after that 1 Corinthians 5 about excommunication. And in my time in church, that's been the extent of the conversation. Um, the stage is given in Matthew 18 by Jesus and then Paul and others talking about excommunication. Um, but someone recently pointed out to me that there's actually a follow-up to the idea of excommunication in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, where uh, Paul talks about someone having been ostracized from the body of believers for long enough that they now need to be brought in and embraced and forgiven. And that that is actually the full cycle of church discipline that Christians need to embrace. Not only stop at the high degree of excommunication or at the, the pinnacle that is excommunication, but eventually allow these people back into the fold uh, and try to work with them again. And perhaps it should go in cycles. So I thought that was really interesting. What are y'all's thoughts on that? I definitely think that excommunication is something that is uh, really not used unless uh, sexual sin is involved. Um, uh, anything that is a harmful addiction is really the only times that you'll see excommunication actually implemented by an eldership, um, and it, it's only used in the most conservative of congregations just because it has you know serious ramifications for the individual uh, because. It's, you know, you're writing somebody off to an extent. I think that this is very interesting, and it's what Christians should seek to do. You know, we want to bring these people back to us. Uh, whatever church discipline there is, is not the final say in how a person is treated by the church, how they are welcomed by the church. So I'm, I'm really glad that you, you brought that up. Stephen, why don't you give us your first interesting thing that you've learned? Well, it's not so much something that I've learned, but something that I still battle over, and that's why you guys are here, so I can toss you some questions that I'm not sure about. Uh, first one I got is the Beatitudes. Um, what exactly are the Beatitudes? Could we say that they are promises that uh, Jesus uh, offers up to those that live accordingly, or are they more of probabilities like we see in the book of Proverbs? That is a good question. Um, personally, I think that they are promises. Now, they might not be promises for this life, but they are promises of how Christians will be treated in eternity. That when hard times come, when, uh, when life does not go the way that you want it to, we are still blessed because we have eternal blessings that, that will come. 
Yeah, I like that um, question, Stephen. Um, I, I, I certainly don't have the answer, but I think a lot of the times when we talk about the Beatitudes, we talk about them as if they are commandments, perhaps. Because um, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, we do get a lot of commands from Jesus. And so we treat the Beatitudes, say, okay, be pure in heart so that you will get these things. It's commandments and then the reward given right after it. But I think Michael's closer, and I think both of your options seem that you gave are closer to the answer, which is they are statements of, um, if you are this, then this will happen. Um, if it's happened in the life to come, or if it's happened in the here and now on earth, I could really see it going either way. I think a case could be made either way. I actually, I might, I may agree with Michael as much as I hate that, but, uh, yeah, I think they're statements of the here and now. Okay, well, just to clarify, if um, there are a few things in Proverbs, and I should have come equipped with some examples, that it says that if you do this, then this will uh, you're more likely to have this happen to you. And they're kind of like rule uh, a rule of thumb. If if you act in this manner, good things will happen to you. But there are some times where we do one of the Proverbs, but, you know, life isn't perfect and things don't work out like the proverb says it should. Um, and so that's why I'm referring to Proverbs as things that are probabilities. They're good rules of thumb to live by, um, where um, Michael seems to think that the promises that Jesus are pinning them to eternal aspects. That makes sense. Michael, why don't you give us one as well? Sure. Uh, so the one I want to bring up first is one that uh, I was asked to teach about. We were going through the book of Daniel, and most of us are very familiar with the first part of the book of Daniel. Uh, but they asked me to teach Daniel chapter 11. And to be honest, I, I'd read it for a daily Bible reading before, but I had never really studied it before. And I was blown away. Daniel chapter 11 uh, contains a prophecy that Daniel makes about the king of the south and the north. And what it actually is, is Daniel is prophesying the history of what will go on, the, the rulers that will be over uh, the kingdom of Israel for the next uh, several hundred years, all the way up to about uh, the, the mid, the, the about 180 or 160, somewhere in there, B.C., and he gets it so exactly right that some uh, Bible critics say that there's no way he could have written this before the events actually happened. And whatever you think about that, one of the coolest things that came out of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which was a discovery that was made in, I think, the 1950s, was they found a copy of Daniel chapter 11 that was... Uh, probably from about 130 BC, which at that point, you have to believe that we almost have the original copy of Daniel chapter 11 if it was only written a few years before that. So to me, this that was an example of uh, God's word standing up uh, to the criticisms that other people bring. That is uh, really fascinating. I know there is a lot of um, writing and scholarship done on the, the prophecies of the Old Testament and understanding these as 
Um, a, a lot of time, so a lot of people obviously believe them as uh, future telling, and that's um, sort of the the traditional view. Um, but there's also ideas about them being uh, maybe generalities that we can see parallel. Uh, people say that a lot about revelation, and that's kind of an orthodox belief about revelation, speaking generally, and we can see how those mirror with uh, future events. And then others just saying that it was simply written after the fact that these Old Testament prophecies are written after um, reflecting on these things, uh, but written from the point of view from the past. So it gets confusing for future readers um, inadvertently. Um, but I, it's always interesting to see some of the, those cool um, insights from archaeology to see how that um, sheds light on the writing of the Old Testament, like you said, Michael. My only comment is that that was very cool. I um, did not know that about Daniel chapter 11. Daniel, why don't you take us to our next one? So uh, my second point comes from the uh, parable in the Gospel of Luke about the rich man and Lazarus. Um, it's already a very strange parable for a number of reasons. Probably the most notable is the fact that it uses a person's name um, instead of just a, a generic person uh, like father and son or a poor man and a rich man. It has this guy named Lazarus. It also talks about the afterlife and Abraham's bosom and all those things. But it also the, the parable ends by the rich man asking uh, Abraham or God to, to have Lazarus go and uh, preach to his brother so that they will be saved and not go through the torment that he is going through. Um, but God in this story um, says that even if a man were to rise from the dead, that his brothers would not believe. And as I've heard the story talked about, that last verse is usually um, only studied because people want to ask the question, oh, would I believe if I saw a guy raised from the dead? Um, would that cause me to make a radical leap in faith? But um, someone has recently pointed out to me that you're, you're missing the bigger picture of the Gospel of Luke here, if you read it like that, that this is either pointing to Lazarus, the actual guy who gets raised from the dead, or probably more likely is it's talking about Jesus, who is raised from the dead, and yet people still do not believe. And it gives that parable uh, a whole new, uh, richer meaning. Now, perhaps some of our listeners had thought of, of that before, and I, I, you know that would be good if they have. I had not thought about that before, and to me that's that's very interesting that Jesus is, is offering some foreshadowing about uh, what was going to happen to him, but also offering a warning that some people just won't believe the evidence that's in front of them, and that's sad. It uh, really just kind of, it goes to show that Jesus was a master of his craft. He was a rabbi, he was a storyteller. If he's going to teach people, uh, he was... He was very good at what he did and the way that he is able to um, deliver a message and it has uh, different layers of meaning behind it. I, I just really think that it shows that Jesus was very good at what he did uh, as a human. Stephen, why don't you give us your second, uh, second question? All right, so my second question is um, regarding Gentiles and let me just ask, why did God uh, isolate the or segregate Gentiles from uh, the 
the Israelite nation? And why were the Gentiles not included in God's chosen people? They were never really given a chance. And so uh, why was this? Why was there this separation um, from Gentiles? And if we can go ahead and skip over to Romans and we see that they uh, were subject to the law that was written on their heart. But again, why, why were they not revealed um, the law with the Israelites? I think that that's a really difficult uh, question that Christians have to grapple with. Uh, I mean, especially in light of Romans, which that passage goes on to say that the law written on the heart condemns those people. People are condemned by the law written on the heart. Um, I mean, uh, one answer that might be proffered is the idea that if if we are going to be brought into um, a high, to a higher standard, we have to be cut off from those who are going to bring us down. Our mother clearly never wanted us to be uh, cut off from the world, but she probably at a young age didn't want us hanging out with people who were bad influences. Right. I'll offer up uh, short answers, I think, from both sides. So from the Israelite side, you know, God really wanted them to be a city on a hill. He wanted them to be uh, separate and apart, you know, to, to, to be a people that could be looked to, um, to be, to, to bring others to them. And that's something I never got uh, growing up. I always thought that, okay, God separated them out and no one else could come in. But actually, the Old Testament has a lot of examples of outsiders seeing the goodness of God's people and then coming in. Now, also, there are parts of the Bible that show that they did a very bad job of being a light to the rest of the world. Um, I think God always wanted all people to be saved. We just don't do the best job of thinking through that in Old Testament times. Right. Just a little follow-up to the question. God does have direct interaction with the Israelites, which the uh, Gentiles throughout the history of time did not get that special treatment. And maybe that is something that we could possibly discuss at another time. Um, the other thing that I thought Michael was going to get into was how, uh, and I heard this all the time growing up, I just didn't really buy into it, that God needed to introduce himself and uh, his covenant on a smaller scale before he opened it up to the rest of the world, which that really is incomplete if you ask me. Um, but moving on, Michael, why don't you give us your next uh, point or question? Sure. Uh, so my next interesting thing that I've learned lately is kind of a, a two for it. Um, and I learned it from the most interesting place. It, it's an article in the New York Times that anyone can go read. Uh, but the, the writer there was talking about how Noah um, made some questionable decisions. And there, there's some, some agreement amongst uh, rabbinic scholars that when you read the story of Noah, it's questionable how he acted. So when God said that he was going to destroy other peoples, um, Abraham, David, uh, Joshua, uh, other leaders of, of the Jewish people often spoke up against that destruction. But when Noah is told of the destruction of the world, he does nothing. Um, he builds an ark. He protects his own family. In fact, he even protects the animals that come that God brings to the ark but Noah is strangely silent uh, he doesn't try I'm quoting here he doesn't try to save his neighbors or argue with God which other people are commended for um, I think 
that uh, we should see Noah as a as a righteous man, uh, but not a leader. And, and that's another thing that the writer brings up. Um, and then Noah, once it's time to get off the ark, does it very slowly, as if he's not willing to take the initiative to go and repopulate the earth. Um, finally, the, the other part of this that I think is, is worth talking about is that uh, in the Old Testament, uh, there are the writer says that there's 613 commands, but there's never a word for obey. Uh, but the word that we think of as, as Shema, as uh, to hear, is actually the word that is most close to it. Uh, the King James uh, Bible translates it hearken, meaning this, that when we're in Noah's situation, it's not enough just, just to hear. You have to also obey. You have to be moved to action when God tells you to do something. Anyway, I thought that that was fascinating. So following up on that, uh, Hebrews chapter 11 is the first thing where my mind went to. Uh, and so Hebrews 11 verses 7, uh, verse 7, By faith Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of of the righteousness that comes by faith. That second part of the verse there kind of kind of supports what you're saying there, that he condemned the world and gained righteousness by faith. So I wouldn't go as far as saying that he was evil, but he definitely no. was in part of uh, not allowing the world to enter the covenant or the ark. Yeah, and Stephen, you're right. Let me let me clarify what I'm saying. I'm not saying he was evil. In fact, I'm saying he was righteous. And the writer says this: he's righteous, but he's not a leader. And so, so there's room for improvement for Noah. Michael, uh, who is the author and the name of the article? If people want to look that up. Yeah, sure. Uh, so David Brooks, uh, who is a columnist for the New York Times, and the article is called Harvey Irma. Jose, and Noah. All right. I assume it had something to do with the recent hurricanes. Do you have to read it to find out how? Well, I'll, I'll give a bit of a spoiler. It's, a, it's about people, when they hear about the problems around them, they need to go and act, you know, to go and help, rather than just to say that at least it's not me. So, Well, Daniel, why don't you give us your last interesting thing that you've learned recently or an interesting question that you have? Okay, so this last one uh, is kind of long, so I'll, tr I'll try to make it go quick. And it's this, uh, it's this theme of meet-cutes throughout the Bible. Most of us are familiar with meet-cutes from the movies. Uh, maybe two characters meet in a bar, and they're sitting right next to each other, but they don't see each other until they get the same drink, and so then they fall in love later. Or perhaps one of them spills coffee on another, and so they fall in love, fall in, love in that way. Well, in the Bible, they have similar things, and it usually... It is people meeting at a well, um, sort of the social gathering spot in ancient times. Um, and so the uh, people often meet wells and they would eventually fall in love. We see that uh, with characters like Jacob and uh, Isaac, his servant meets his, wife, his future wife in that way. Uh, Moses saves uh, a woman at a well and uh, eventually marries her. And so we see that throughout the Bible, and it um, starts to have expectations that come along with it. But there are two notable uh, twists to that theme. The first one is um, the story of Saul. 
Saul, when he's trying to find Samuel, and uh, he's trying to find Samuel and he'll eventually become king, he actually sees some women getting water at a well and asks them for directions. And the reader is obviously going to think, oh, he's going to meet this woman. He's going to fall in love with her. But he uh, meets her and walks, uh, talks to her and walks right by her after that. And this is setting up the, the story of Samuel, setting up this character Saul as sort of an idiot who passes up these opportunities for love. And eventually he loses the kingdom after this. Uh, the other notable one is Jesus, who meets a woman at the well. If you're reading this, you think, oh, she's going to have this romantic encounter. Really, if you know nothing else about Jesus, you may expect that. But Jesus changes that completely and talks about the woman about, to the woman about her previous romantic encounters and has a very important conversation afterwards, uh, twisting that theme or that motif of uh, meet-cutes and meetings at wells. What do you all think about that? Definitely interesting just to see the, uh, the similarities between scenes. I, I think we've seen the same thing with um, scenes that were, take place on mountains in the Old Testament uh, versus uh, the same scenes that are taking uh, place in the New Testament on the same mountain. Uh, I don't know if there's any parallels to be drawn there, but yeah, it's definitely something to pay attention to. Guy and a girl walk up a mountain, and you know they fall in love. Uh, I really think that that um, that the story of Jesus is really interesting to look at from that way. Like you said, Daniel, if, if the reader doesn't know exactly who he is, but also that because they're at a well, perhaps she's more uncomfortable by the fact that Jesus is bringing up these past love affairs, and it is even more convicting for her uh, and and her eventual turnaround. So. Stephen, why don't you give us your last interesting thought? So uh, this is something that I've learned recently regarding uh, baptism. I had always been so curious as to why, how did John know to baptize people that wanted to uh, uh, follow the Christ? First of all, the word that's used is baptizo, which means that they were being immersed, and so they were uh, being, they were doing an action that symbolized a uh, death and resurrection. And so if Christ had not died and been raised from the dead, how did they know to do that? And so what I had learned from some, uh, just listening to some scholars, is that there were uh, people dating even back before John that were practicing this baptism that they knew just from reading the Old Testament or the, the law that there was going to be somebody that came and um, that would die, that would become a sacrificial lamb. And so there were some people that really recognized that this was going to happen. Uh, and so I would have liked to have met those people because if you're able to see that far down and really get the picture when nobody else was, um, knowing that uh, baptism is something that needed to be done even before Christ had died. I mean, that really just blows my mind that somebody had that much uh, foresight and knowledge to really put all the pieces of the puzzle together. Stephen, you know, like, like you've said before, it is amazing the grand narrative that God is putting together, that he is that he is putting on the minds of his followers these ideas that have more meaning than they know, you know, 
many generations before they actually come to their full fruition. So I, I think that's a really cool one that I'll be thinking about for a while. Yeah, I think uh, baptism is this interesting phenomenon that we see in the Bible. Um, it's obviously not usually called that in the Old Testament, but we do see people uh, being immersed in water. We see Naaman being told to go uh, immerse himself in the river Jordan. So we we know that this has sort of this ritualistic meaning. And then obviously Jesus instills it with this uh, even greater symbolic meaning uh, during his ministry. But John does this special event um, that's noted in even secular history, that there's there's this guy, John, he's doing something really cool out in the wilderness that affects that whole region and changes a lot of people's lives. And so we see something uh, truly spiritual and, uh, like Michael said, epic on the grant and the scheme of salvation. Michael, I'm curious, are you going to finish this podcast off with telling us your uh, thoughts on Esther, or where are you going? <laughs> oh, well, we will save that one for another podcast. Um, although, <laughs> yeah, that would be interesting. Um, so... I wanted to tell y'all about a sermon, or it, actually, it was a, it was a I think it was a Wednesday night class that I heard three or four years ago. Um, it's been a while, and the way the way the class started, I thought this is going to be the most boring class I have ever heard. Um, he got out his Bible and he said, "Let's look at Genesis chapter five, the first genealogy in Scripture, and let's study that for the next hour." And I was thinking. You've got to be kidding me. This might be the most boring class I've ever sat through. And I'm just going to read the names really quick, just to give a refresher uh, to our audience. And uh, so if you're driving, you don't have to look this up. But in Hebrew, here are the names of, of the genealogy as listed in Genesis chapter 5. Adam, Seth, en Enish, Kenan, Mahalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech and Noah. Now, y'all are probably thinking, okay, I've heard those names before, very nice. But then the teacher started going through the our English translations of those words, what those words mean to us. And I had never heard this before, and I will never forget it. Uh, Adam means man. Okay, I'd heard that one before, but Seth means appointed. Enish means mortal. Kenan means sorrow. Uh, Mahalel means the blessed God. Jared means shall come down. Okay. Uh, Enoch means teaching. Methuselah means uh, his death shall bring. Uh, Lamech means the despairing. And then Noah means rest. Okay, interesting. But when you put all of those together as if it was one sentence, it would be something like this. Man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching that his death shall bring the despairing rest. I heard that and I said, whoa, the gospel message buried in a genealogy uh, about what God was going to do for his people. And, and even if people say, oh, well, they just went back and changed the names later. Oh, did they also know that Jesus was going to be raised from the dead? Uh, to me, this is another amazing sign of, of God's grand narrative. Well, way to one-up mine. Uh, that's uh, 
And everything we've said was just a joke up until now. That's definitely something that I'll steal for a table talk or something, you know. Yeah. Uh, Question, Michael. Has this, do you know if this guy has shared this anywhere else? Can I write this in a blog post? I think. Oh, yeah, because we're we're all stealing that. We're all stealing that for sure. So I want to say that he said that he had heard it from someone else. Uh, but his name's uh, Monty. He, w- he was an elder at our congregation in Fayetteville. He didn't teach that often, but when he did, it was really good. Okay, I thought you Not were going to say his name is Monty Cox, and now you know the rest of the story. <laughs> I guess not. All of the Monty's I know are just great people. So. <laughs> great points, guys. Hopefully that our listeners can take uh, what they've heard and use it. Feel free to steal it uh, for yourself and use it in a table talk if you found anything interesting. That's it for today. We'll have a brand new episode for you next week. Check out our blog at religionandstory.wordpress.com and leave us your feedback. See you next time.